0: turn also to the Old Testament the book of Ecclesiastes the text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 this also is God's word What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for you are the source of light, that you are the source of wisdom, and that you have given us intellect. But, Father, we cannot cannot reach to you and achieve you. That your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth. And Father we acknowledge. How all kinds of pursuits in this life. Whether it be pursuits of knowledge and wisdom. Of labor. Of pleasure. Of all these things. Father that if they are pursued without you. They are hopeless causes. Father we pray that you might remind us. That you indeed. Are the, are the one who holds all things together. And Father, we pray that you would guide us in our lives, that we would see you as our true hope, that we would acknowledge that without you in this world, there is no hope, there is no meaning, there is no substance. Father, we pray that Jesus Christ, your Son, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here we are starting a new sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Children, I want to ask you, has it already been an occasion, once, twice, maybe a dozen times, where you've said to yourself, my parents raised me this way, or they enforce this rule, but when I become a mother or a father... I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm going to make all things better for my children. Perhaps the time has not come, or perhaps you're speaking now as adults, and you're realizing, no, those things could not be. I did not know how they were until I became a parent and I realized I didn't fix the problem that I perceived. Here. What we're looking at in Ecclesiastes is this idea of these cycles of life that go through. And you have to come to the realization that we think we have all the answers, yet when it comes time for us to implement, we don't. This is true in so much of our lives. If only you would do things this way. And then you do things that way, and you realize the 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 trickle-down effect of all the things that happen because this one little change was made and suddenly the whole system is far worse than before. The solution becomes worse than the problem. And how true this is in, in, uh, in a job, in the church, in society. And so also, here, when you look at this passage, you look at this book of Ecclesiastes, It attempts to address some of these things, the deeper matters of life. As we think about this book, you realize that this is not an easy book. And uh, I attempted on several occasions in the past to start it. And it wasn't until this week that I started it that I realized how big of a minefield I dug into but nonetheless, this is God's word, and God speaks to us through his word. And you must come to understand that we need wisdom for this day. We need wisdom for our times. And that it's particularly during these times that people are looking for answers. And that God is stripping away the things. You think about the things that the author brings up, whether it be uh, labor. Well, your work has changed. Significantly for some of you. You think about the, the injustices and the oppression in life that this book addresses those things. It addresses pleasure. It addresses monotony. All these things are addressed in this book, an appropriate book for such a time. The truth that we see in this passage. Ecclesiastes teaches that all life is futile and hopeless when viewed without God. For in him all things hold together. Ecclesiastes teaches that all life is futile and hopeless when viewed without God, for in him all things hold together. We'll look at this in four points. The first is the author. The second, the theme. Third, the summary question. And then fourth, the proofs of vanity. So the first point from verse 1 is the author of Ecclesiastes. The The words of the preacher, the son of David... King in Jerusalem. <coughs> so we have these several phrases. So the one about preacher, the, the Hebrew word there is Kohelet, and it comes from the root word in Hebrew for assembly, or someone who assembles, uh, one who convenes an assembly. That the the Greek the Greek word equivalent uh, would be uh, the word for church, right? ecclesia. So you, you look at these terms, the person's called a preacher because he's an, an, he's an assembler. He's someone who's like an MC. He's the one who calls people together. And he's also referred to here the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now here the son of David, keep in mind that in our culture... The usage of son refers to an immediate male descendant. So when someone says, this is my son, we, we, we hear them and we say, oh, he's just saying that this is his immediate male descendant. But you have to realize that in Hebrew, son does not mean an immediate male descendant. It means a male descendant. You understand that difference? So when in the beginning of Matthew, written by a Jew in a Jewish context when it refers to Jesus as, as the son of Abraham there's no lie there because Jesus is the descendant of Abraham he's just not the immediate descendant here also king in Jerusalem this is a phrase that's only used here in, in Ecclesiastes nowhere in the Bible is, is this term king in Jerusalem used so perhaps some of you are wondering who wrote this book Tradition has it that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. But I I want you to realize that denying that Solomon wrote this book is not uh, a departure from orthodoxy. Okay, So I'm going to say that I don't know who wrote this book. Uh, We look at the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Some people say, well, that has to be Solomon. No, it doesn't have to be Solomon. We look at some of his other works. Clearly, Solomon wrote Proverbs, or at least much of it. Clearly, Solom wrote, Solomon wrote the Songs of Songs or Songs of Solomon. Both, in both of those books, at the beginning, in the first what, verse or two, Solomon by name is identified as the author. But he's not here. He's not here. So I hope you understand. This is not a departure from orthodoxy when we say, perhaps we don't know who wrote the book. It's not important who, as a human, wrote the book. There are other books, for example, Hebrews, where we don't know who the author is. It is still part of the canon. It is still authoritative in our lives. There are certain internal evidences that would speak against Solomon as the author. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, when you think about all, if you think about who fits into that category of all who were over Jerusalem before me, and you remember that it was in the reign of David, he began as king in Hebron for about seven years, and then, then he moved to Jerusalem. So, all who were in Jerusalem before me amounts to one man, King David. So, it seems odd to claim that. Then also, the descriptions about rulers and oppression and injustice. Perhaps Solomon was speaking about a future time, that this is the golden age. You think about all the things that were great. That Queen of Sheba came to visit, to see for herself all the great things that existed in Israel under the reign of Solomon and she had only heard from a distance all these great things but then when she came and listened to him and all the answers that he had the order of his society the, the appearance and the dress of his servants that she was, she was basically swept off her feet so we're talking about all these things of rulers and oppression and justice as if, wait a minute but Solomon, you're, you're the king so here, when we think about the author, we don't know who that author necessarily is. We do know that it is the Holy Spirit who inspires the scriptures. Second Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here, I'm saying, it's not necessarily Solomon, at least not all of it. We think even to the way that it's structured <clears throat> at the very end of Ecclesiastes from chapter 12, verse 9 on. It seems as if someone else is speaking. There's a summary given. And perhaps one way to think about this is we have in our literature uh, Uncle Remus or um You think about more modern uh, or another context, the C.S. Lewis, when he writes the screw tape letters, he's not claiming to be a demon. It's not deception that he tries to write from one demon to another. So here it's as if the author is trying to use uh, the pen of Solomon and this great wisdom that he would have had. Some people claim that it's this book, Ecclesiastes, is an account of Solomon's repentance later on in life. One flawed view about that is that we have no account of Solomon's repentance later on in life. In fact, when you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it specifically says later on in his life, it was all these wives, these foreign wives, these idolatrous wives who led him astray. So it's nice to say, yes, uh, Ecclesiastes is an account of his repentance and what he learned, but... We don't have any account of that in the scriptures. Part of the difficulty of not knowing who wrote the book, because men's lives are short, uh, 70 years or due to strength 80, a person's life puts them at a certain time period, a finite time period. Not knowing who necessarily wrote the book, you also don't really know in what context the book was written. So uh, understanding certain things become difficult. So, up to Solomon, to all these periods in the history of Israel, a period of about 800 years. That's the possibility of when this book of Ecclesiastes was written. And uh, some claim that there are uh, Greek thoughts. Others that he's addressing thoughts of the Babylonians. So, here, what we ought to understand is that God's word is true. And that regardless of who wrote it, the Holy Spirit inspired it. And because of that, we should submit to it. We should honor it. We should believe it. So this is the first point, the author. And we have the theme of Ecclesiastes in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Here we, we have the theme of Ecclesiastes. Where he uses this word, vanity... The the word literally in Hebrew is havel. And it means a breath or a vapor. But here, it's not the literal word that the author has in mind. He has in mind the figurative meaning. The figurative meaning is often translated as vanity or meaningless, futile, fleeting, useless or worthless, any number of those things. And just as there are words in a foreign language, if if you speak one or many other languages, you realize to translate one word into another language, oftentimes it's not so easy to do, especially if oftentimes it's used figurative, figuratively, not literally. So here, the, the author of Ecclesiastes has in mind that the theme has to do with the figurative word of, of havel And we know that it's the theme because here he mentions it in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And then he mentions it again at the end of the book, at chapter 12, verse 8, where he basically repeats the same thing from chapter 1, verse 2. They function as two bookends, that in... In literature, this literary device is known as an inclusio. So he opens and closes. He he tells you what he's going to tell you. Uh, He tells you, and then he told you what he told you, so to say. And this whole idea of vanity. Here he's saying that all is vanity. And vanity of vanities, in Hebrew, that's a repetition of a phrase. So uh, you think about in the temple, there's the holy of holies. Uh, or the the heaven of heavens means the highest heaven the holy of holiest means the holiest place so when he says the vanity of vanities as if he's making a parody of that and he's saying it is the worst of vanities it's the worst of futility here he addresses the matter and then he raises it throughout this book he addresses matters of wisdom of labor, of pleasure, of wealth. And sometimes people are questioning this because here, the, those things are important. That God tells us to labor. That he who does not work shall not eat. So, so he can't speak against labor in a certain way, but yet he does. He talks about pleasure. That God has given us pleasure. That he tells us to take pleasure in him. That he provided us things, food and, and sex. And uh, uh, rest and all these things are those things bad in and of themselves the answer is no so there has to be some legitimate answer for these things yet perhaps what the book is saying is that of these things none of it provides true lasting meaning to life if someone says that he, he lives to work meaning that his job defines him He's married to his job. He worships his job. We're going to say that ultimately, he finds no true satisfaction. Because someday, when the economy is difficult, this man who is very diligent, very faithful, extremely capable, that he aligns himself with the wrong uh, director or VP. And uh, then he gets laid off because he's not part of the winning side. And there he learns at that point that work and his job and living for his job is vanity. This matter of vanity gets raised again in Romans chapter 8. That, that same word in Romans eight 20. Let's read this again. For the creation was subjected to futility... Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This very description that the Apostle Paul gives about futility. That this is the same word. If you think about the Greek uh That the same word futility was used in the Old Testament for this passage in Ecclesiastes. And we're told here that you look at the effect of the fall. That when Adam and Eve... Disobeyed God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That the fall had an effect not only on humans. It had an effect on all of creation. Meaning what happened to the animals. What happened to uh, the environment. That the fall affected all those things. And we're we're told here that creation, creation was subjected to futility. Meaning that all of creation is looking ahead, looking forward to be rescued from this. This very idea that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What happens with people when they're so focused on the little things of life? And the whole idea of, you know what? This is what we're doing. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to be really good at doing it. We're going to excel at this. And not thinking about these eternal things. Not thinking about God's great plan. Not understanding how these things work. Not understanding what God has given to us in his word. We're told that this ultimately is vanity. It ends in hopelessness. Are you putting your hope in these earthly things? You realize all of them will merely result in vanity, in dissatisfaction if they're pursued outside of God. So this is the second point, the theme of Ecclesiastes. We have the third point, the summary question of Ecclesiastes in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil? at which he toils under the sun. Here, we had earlier in verse 2 the the theme, and here we have a summary question. So it's as he's making some kind of uh, progress. And we have first this concept of gain. What does man gain? So this gain is the same word that describes profit. So in a business, If someone is uh, in business, right, he, he sells a product for a certain price and he gets income from those sales. And after all of this stuff is counted and you have one side of your cost and the other side of your income or your sales and then you do your subtraction, the difference is what's called this gain, the profit or the benefit or the advantage. And this term also is repeated oftentimes in this book. Vanity uh, is far more frequent, like more than 30 times. And this gain is also mentioned, not as frequently. But at the end of the day, man looks to profit from his labor. So what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this concept of toil understand that toil or work that this is part of the curse of the fall so Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and that didn't have results merely for them but it had results it had effects on all of their descendants and as we said earlier it had an effect on the entire creation and regarding the work that Adam's role was to tend the garden. Eve's role was to help him tend the garden. And because of their disobedience, part of God's curse was on labor. Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Meaning that by our hard work and toil, we will earn our food. We hear about it in another place. In uh, uh, Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain that you rise up early and go go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This idea of eating the bread of anxious toil, that oftentimes your work, your labor is painful, that the results aren't there, that it brings sadness and grief, that uh, the income is not coming in. You you think about uh, the difficulties of the work, that at times there is the difficulty of monotony. It seems the same thing over again. I think back to graduation, right? So you graduate from high school, or you graduate from college, or whatever it is. The commencement, or, or, or the graduation speaker, always is there to blow, to blow sunshine into your life. About how, you know, you paid $160,000 for this degree, and you know what? It's going to buy you a great amount, and you're going to change the world. And then, as an 18-year-old, or 22-year-old, or whatever it is, you go out to work, and then after six months of working, you realize you ain't changing the world. You're not going to do it. And after some time, seven months, you set into this rhythm of you realize that what they taught you in school was all too idealistic, Right? And and this is kind of the pattern. Part of the curse of the fall, one of the curses, is the monotony of work. It is the monotony of work. But yet God's compassion still shines. That though there is a curse of the fall and, and of labor, yet we're also told that he blesses it so that you may earn your food. Psalm 104, 14 to 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Here, God is saying that he allows you to make or or to have bread. To have food from your labors. It's a reminder that God is one who sustains us. That he calls us to work. He's cursed the work but yet he also blesses it. In this verse also, we have this phrase, under the sun. What does man gain by all the work at which he toils under the sun? This phrase is also used over 30 times in Ecclesiastes. And it's a key concept in order for us to understand the theme. So think about it for a moment. That you draw an imaginary line between heaven and earth this imaginary line <clears throat> and here it's as if the author of ecclesiastes is saying <clears throat> that under the sun is we only think about <clears throat> what happens under the sun we we cut god out we have a closed system a box and so long as man reasons from the perspective without including god in his reasoning and his thoughts and his plans, life will always and only be vanity and futile. So that imaginary lion under the sun, we cut that and we say anything above the sun, above the heavens, right, that we don't include God, the result will be grief, meaninglessness, and sadness. Secular humanism, the philosophy that begins... And ends with man. Leaving no room for God. This can only result in despair. I think that's part of uh, the author's point. Kohelet he's trying to make the point. That life without God. Life and all the pursuits of life. Pursued outside of God without God. As the center. It results in grief and sadness. And despair. Meaninglessness. This is perhaps for us a reminder that you and I, we cannot expect society, psychology, philosophy, secular religion to provide all of the answers and the solutions. If ever you're looking to society, well, society will fix this. Uh, You know, medicine. Medical technology and advancement, that's going to fix our problems. Well, we have this problem called death. And we cannot fix that. Some people claim that uh, the life expectancy has only gone up with medical technology. But when I read Psalm 90, and it says that a man's years are 70 or due to strength 80. How is that really that different from our life expectancy right now? Meaning that we account for infant mortality, maybe the average lifetime uh, was was lower back then, but after they got past the age of one or five, it says that they were living the 70 or 80 years. So also, you look at the problems of life. Ultimately, they're not solved by the people who are in charge, who are the social scientists, right? The philosophers. It's not going to be by other religions. These answers are going to be found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Whatever problems there are, the hope, the solution, ultimately comes in Jesus Christ. When you think about the story of the Tower of Babel, that these men were saying, we're going to build this tower, and we're going to ascend to heaven so that we can reach God. And then you have God saying, what's going on there? Let us go down. This description about God saying, hey we're going to have to condescend to go down there to see what's going on. Human terms, of course, because God is everywhere, but there's no way that man can reach to the level of God, that man's reasoning, man's thoughts, never will it be that he can achieve the thoughts of God. Instead, what we have is the Emmanuel principle, Matthew chapter 1, that God sent his son, and that Jesus is God with us, that God condescends to man's level. He condescends to the level of interacting with man. He sent his son who would become the sin sacrifice, the propitiation. That Jesus is the one who comes to save his people from their sins. And that here, God's reminding us that outside of him, we don't have the answers. We don't have sufficient answers. And outside of him, there's no true meaning to life. There's no true happiness. It can't be found outside of him. And perhaps that's part of what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. He wants you to pursue these things and that you might become disillusioned with them. Meaning in the sense that you're saying, wait a minute, those things don't satisfy at all. Those things can't satisfy and there are people in the world who have tested those things. So if Solomon is one who whose God had gifted with wisdom, and he's saying there was no satisfaction in those things outside of God, perhaps we should believe him. When you look at the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son takes his father's inheritance, and he goes out and he pursues pleasure. And then he comes back to the Father. Because ultimately he realizes that those pleasures, those fleeting pleasures, did not satisfy him. And so here we have the summary question. The fourth point, the proofs of vanity in verses 4 through 11. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises So the proofs of vanity the author divides into two sections. the first is a proof of vanity from nature in verses four through seven and then in mankind verses eight through eleven. So in nature <coughs> verses four through eleven essentially he raises the he mentions the four elements of earth, wind, fire water that was at the Greeks they They categorize the elements into those four. Earth, wind, fire, water. And here, the author of Ecclesiastes addresses those. So verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So people are coming and going. People are being born and then living and then dying. And then another generation comes and then the earth is still here. Then he describes the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down, hastening Hastening to the place where it rises. Here we have a nature. The author is pointing to these things and saying, look at this. This is meaningless. This is the monotony. Even nature, it's, it's visible. That these things happen. And an example of this, when we say that wisdom, observation, science outside of God doesn't have it all. All we need to do is look at God's covenant with Noah. Because here, when God spoke to Noah, the covenant that he made with Noah addressed these very matters. Genesis 8.22 And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Did you catch that? The author of Ecclesiastes, judging from man's perspective, he says, hey, he sees generations can come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. God says differently. While the earth remains, meaning that God has a plan that He will one day consume the earth in the fire, the Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter three. And then, when the author of Ecclesiastes looks at the natural cycles and says, "All these things are monotonous. These things are boring. They're mind-numbing." Instead, God is saying. Look at those cycles. The sun rises, the sun sets, day and night. What we ought to be doing to interpret that is we look at those things and we say, look, that's proof that God is faithful to us. He's not going to judge this world again by a flood. So when we go through the cycles of the seasons, we go through the cycles of day and night and year after year. Instead of looking like the secularist and says, these things are just proof of the mind-numbing boringness and monotony and grief of life. What, should, what we, we should be saying is, no, wait a minute. We have the answers to those things. These things don't cause me to, to have uh, no hope. They're testimony of God's faithfulness to us. We interpret it in a new light because God, in his word, has told us what those things mean. The streams running to the sea. <clears throat> this also is true. That uh, water evaporates from the oceans. And it forms clouds. And then those condense. They form rain. And you say, hey, but the sea is never full. You look at God's interpretation of those things. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. He talks about the water. And he talks about his word. And he talks about how... Uh, Just as he sends the rain that waters the earth, it gives seed to the sower, it gives bread to the eater. He says in the same way, he sends his word and it doesn't return to him empty. But what he's saying is that he's in control of every little molecule of water. So that when it rises and when it falls, it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. It gives new meaning to nature and our understanding of nature. Because God has given it meaning. Meaning that droplet of water is going to water this plant that produces this seed. And that seed will be ground and it's going to form bread and it's going to nourish my servant. These things are new meanings for us. We have also in mankind, verses 8 through 11. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Oftentimes in life, it's a simple matter of a change of perspective. This thing of weariness. <clears throat> Think for a moment about the Israelites wandering the wilderness. They protest to Moses, they protest to God. This food that we have, this manna, we're sick of it. We can't stand it. And what they're saying is, this is boring. We want something new. What did God do for them? You think about what other generation received the blessing of having food fall from the sky six days a week. We're told 40 years God provided for them. Their perspective was, God, what you give us is boring, and we despise it. You look at Joshua chapter 5. Israelites were about to go conquer Jericho. God says, wait, you're not separate from them. You're the same. You need to be circumcised. After the circumcision, there was... <clears throat> they ate of the fruit of the land. They, they ate of the Passover. Celebrated the Passover. They ate of the fruit of the land. They ate of the produce of that land. That, the land that God promised them. And then we're told then... That God stopped providing them manna. It wasn't until they ate of the fruit of the land that God had promised them. After 40 years... You realize God never missed a day other than the planned days... The Sabbath day. Six days a week for 40 years. That God didn't miss a day. God, you know our needs. You provide for us. Why couldn't the Israelites say, God, we praise you for your faithfulness and your mercy to us. You know our needs. You meet our needs. Instead, what they said was, we despise the things that you give us because they're monotonous. They're wearisome. It's easy for us to look at them and complain about them and and shame on them. But you realize, you realize for a moment, is there a in your life? Do you gripe and complain about certain things? This is boring. Your life is boring. How often do we say, Lord, in the boringness of my life, what I've realized is that you are the one who has provided stability. You are the one who provided all these things that we need. That we have this meal yet again is proof that God has provided a meal for us. And that we ought to see things in a new light. What God has given from above the sun. It's only then that we can realize, God, you indeed are good, that you're faithful, you're trustworthy. All of my needs you meet. You meet it exceedingly well, exceedingly abundantly. That we would learn. That this monotony, this weariness, this is man's perspective, a fallen, pers- sinful perspective. If instead we would say, God, you are glorified. You know what we need. What we need is a savior. Because the problem we have is our sin. And we might realize, well, God, when you give us the good news of the gospel, then we must realize how good that news is. <clears throat> we see also, the cycles of things that don't change. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Your iPad, your smartphone is not proof that this verse is wrong. No, it's not. There's nothing new under the sun. Is <clears throat> saying that oftentimes there are just things that don't change. So you think about how the modern scholarship of scripture, people say, oh, well, we've studied these things, and, and this is what we came up with. Well, you don't need to go back far, or you can go back really, really far. And you'll see that in the history of the church, these same debates, these same answers that they came up with were already there. So the different theories, the different interpretations, and the different arguments, it's there throughout the history of the church. It's not as if uh, the the guy who's been given, conferred the new PhD is is somehow cutting edge. All these things were already there. You think about the cycles, the cycles of life, the cycles of sin. That children began by asking you this idea of I'm going to do it differently when I'm a parent. I'm going to do it differently when I'm the boss. But then you become the boss. You become the parent. And you realize you still have to deal with the same things. You still get the same complaints from your children about not wanting to eat the broccoli. And you realize you can't just tell them you don't ever have to eat vegetables. Because that's not an answer. It's not a sufficient answer. You just can't do that. So here, we're reminded in God's word... Are we going to be better than our parents? In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. We have an interesting part of Elijah's life. He was there, uh, Mount Carmel. There was a great showdown. Uh, and God proved himself superior to all the prophets of Baal and to Baal himself. And then you have Jezebel threatening him, saying, I'm going to kill you. Essentially, that's what she says. And then he flees. And he flees. And his plea to God is, take my life. For I'm no better than my father's. Ultimately, this is what he's saying. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. He's saying, I can't break the cycle. The same things that I told them. I, I saw my parents, the same sins of of uh, not being faithful, of being fearful, of fearing, fearing man rather than fearing God and all these things he's, he's saying I, I, I'm part of it I can't get free from it and you realize that it's only God who breaks those cycles of sin some people wonder can, can these generational sins ever come to an end, they come to an end in Jesus Christ That God is the one who can break that gravitational pull. Think about the promise in Romans chapter 4. Sorry, Romans chapter 6 verse 4. The symbolism of baptism. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead. Through the glory of the Father. So we too might walk in newness of life. See... This is that question. Is there anything new under the sun? Is there a thing of which it is said. See this is new. Well here if anything. There is new. In newness of life. Only God can give that. It's symbolized in the death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In your life in Christ. That by faith. You. It's proof that you are new. That God gave life. When there wasn't life. That this is the good news of the gospel, that you and I, who are a product of our generation, a product of our environment, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that somehow these cycles of sin can be broken. That God is the one who sets us free. He is the one who gives us newness of life in Jesus Christ. That You embrace these promises by faith that these sins of yours can and have been forgiven by Jesus Christ our Lord. This indeed is new. In the sense that it's far better than what the world can come up with regarding good news. It was God who planned it. So also in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. Is there anything that is new? There's what God has what God has made. Those things are new. That God had a plan. In the Garden of Eden. Adam fouled up that plan. That Jesus comes. To fix it. And that we're looking ahead to the future. When all things will be made new. Until then. We continue laboring in this world. Laboring in hope. Because God has given us hope. Though there's a curse of the fall. There's also hope that he provides for our needs. That... He is the only one who gives us this true meaning of life. He is the only one who answers all these questions. And as you continue to ask these questions, as things come up, that the answers may not always be so simple, but the answers are found in our Lord Jesus Christ and in His Word. That our hope is there, the promises are there, the good news of the gospel is there. That you and I might say, we can't find hope. We can't find satisfaction in any of these earthy things under the sun. Instead, our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who redeems us. He is the one who has bought us. And he is the one who will come back to bring us to our heavenly home. In Christ's name. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ.